You're listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Lubbock, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered, missional family of disciples making disciples and churches planting churches. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit RedeemerLubbock.org. Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. My name is Dusty. I'm one of the pastors at Redeemer. And here's what we're going to be doing really all year long, and it's my honor to be able to kick this off today, is we're going to be, um, we're going to have, we have a reading plan uh, to you know, help you read the Bible individually, but also hopefully even with family, hopefully with friends that we can disciple one another for growth. And that really kicks off. We started that on January the 1st, so no big deal if you're a little bit late. You could just pick right up. But here's what's cool about it is that whoever is speaking on Sunday is going gonna, is gonna to preach from one of those five chapters that you're going to be reading individually and, and hopefully even talking about with some people around you and just hope that it will help you grow a bit. So if you want to grab one of those for free, you can grab just a paper a paper copy of, uh, of the reading plan and what days you're reading what. There's also a book that we're giving to you at cost that um, you can buy that will, for adults, there's one of those that you can give, give you a little bit more and helping you, giving you a few more tools to help you understand uh, this, the passages. That uh, First of all, it was really cool. A couple of guys, Jason and Keith, that I've been meeting with for years, and we mostly meet up and just talk about our life and what's going on and how Jesus intersects with that, uh, which we did that, but for, probably for the first 30, 35 minutes, we spent talking about Luke 1 through 3. It was a really great thing to do together that just added a lot to our time, at least from my perspective. And then another cool thing this week is I grabbed um, a, a copy of the kids' book to do all that, and I did it with my younger kid, JJ, who turned 11 this week, and we did those together, the first one or two of those. And on Friday, I was having some fun with some friends Friday afternoon. I come home, and, um, and then JJ and my wife Amy are talking, and he grabbed that book and on his own did the lesson that day and read the scripture, highlighted the parts in there that it told him to do, and there's a little activity you did, and then it had a challenge for him to go talk with one of your parents about baptism, and all that happened. He did all that on his own and went to talk to Amy about baptism and what it means to follow Jesus and all that. It was just really cool. So it's already having an impact on me personally, and, and I would love to invite you in to grow together in God's Word this year. So one of these chapters for this week is Luke 4. You've already heard it read. Let me tell you what we're going to be doing with this. We're going to be talking about a deep touch with, uh, in Jesus' temptations, there's a deep touch in Israel's past with temptation that that Israel had been through as a a nation. And then there's also going to be a deep touch with what you experience on a day-to-day basis in a real obvious way, you and Israel and everybody else, that we uh, we are prone to temptation. We just are. We're really vulnerable. And in fact, as a pastor, that whenever I deal with people who are interact with them in any way that are going through hard times or maybe have even failed at something or another, that my first impulse is never judgment of, oh my goodness, how could they do that? That if anything, over the years, I've learned how vulnerable all of us are. Like all of us are just almost capable of nearly anything and so vulnerable to some of the enemy's lies that can seem so appealing in a season. And this is part of our experience. And there's nothing unique to you about it, like that every human being that's been on on this earth has experienced the same. So here's what we're going to do. The first part, we're going to talk about Jesus's temptations, but we're going to compare it to Israel, first of all, their experience in the Old Testament. And we'll get to that in a minute. Then the second part, we're going to talk about you and Jesus and how some of the temptations that you face may be kind of similar to what he faced there and some resources to help you through that. Make sense? 
All right, so let's go ahead and do this. Luke 4, and let me go ahead and make the comparison here. So Jesus and Israel is the first thing we're going to do. That Israel, so a Jewish reader that would have read this or heard this, that to a lot of us that hear this are like, man, this is such a strange story. Jesus going in the wilderness and like, why? Why, why, why is he not eating? And is he wanting to spend time with the Father? And the answer is yes. Uh, he does that other times, except doesn't necessarily fast for 40 days while he does it. This just seems so strange. And you put yourself in this vulnerable position, and then the devil shows up, and like, what's going on? A Jewish reader would have immediately seen what was going on here. They'd have been, oh, okay, wilderness, 40 days, temptation. Okay, I get it. Because I'm talking even a very young child that had a very basic knowledge of the Old Testament would have understood. And it would have been, okay. So Israel, when they were, we actually studied this as a church this year in the Exodus story. They're in, in slavery in Egypt. And on the way out of Egypt, they go through the wilderness for 40 years. And they are confronted with a lack of food and drink and a whole lot of other things. And tended to distrust God. And instead of depending on him, instead of believing him, they tended to distrust him. In fact, so much so that uh, that entire generation ends up dying in the wilderness after 40 years, and a new generation was raised up, and then Joshua leads them into the promised land. And you just see the parallels here of, okay, 40 years for Israel, 40 days for Jesus, both faced all sorts of temptation, um, a lot of the same kinds of things. Israel, while did a few good things, mostly distrusted God, and then we're going to see a very different response from Jesus. So with that in mind, so you see that comparison of Israel and Jesus. Now let's look at the, the temptations that Jesus faced in this. So one, one thing I want you to see, even as this first temptation comes up, is how Satan typically doesn't come to Jesus and Israel and you with a pitchfork and a diabolical laugh of like that kind of thing. That's not usually what he does. He comes to Jesus with an idea, and an idea that intersects him at a point of vulnerability, probably a legit desire and need. In this case for Jesus, the first one is going to be hunger. All right, so we, we could pick up there, and he's, he's hungry and uh, ate nothing during those days, and he was hungry. And by the way, if you're like, yeah, but he's Jesus, yeah, but he, he took on human flesh, and if you did not eat for 40 days, you would feel exactly how Jesus felt at the end of the 40 days. It's exactly the same. Same hunger, your body, you would have lost all kinds of weight in a bad way, and you, you would be feeling, your body is shutting down, like it's not a good situation. And the devil comes to him in that vulnerability when he's hungry, right? and says, if you're the son of God, command the stone to become bread. And so here's the intersection of Jesus's uh, point of weakness physically, and it's the same one that you're going to face. I don't want to get too much into that because we're going to do it towards the end of the sermon, but think about it. Um, how how uh, plausible would this be? You, um, you have formerly been in heaven with the Father and the Spirit and, and uh, perfectly, perfectly being worshipped there and like you would experience that kind of rule and reign. And then now you come into this earth and you're hungry and uh, you, you are, have not necessarily been received well by, uh, by the people that you ha have formed, Israel and as well as others. And, uh, and then Satan says something that on the surface is very plausible. When you're hungry, your body's shutting down come on, why don't you flex for a minute? Just flex and turn that stone into bread. And I mean, that, there's, there's something to that argument, isn't there? Well, yeah, sure. I, I, in fact, 
Um, it, would, it would be nothing for me to do that, and don't I deserve that? I mean, I, I'm the one who invented bread, and I'm the one who invented, I, I put all these stones out here, and I'm the one who made them. And so what would be so wrong about me turning one of these, these stones into bread? What would be so wrong about that? And wh- what would be so bad about that? So it's an intersection of his vulnerability with, with an idea. And again, without getting too deep into the weeds on this, this is exactly the strategy uh, of, what, of what Satan tends to do, where you have a legit human need. Let's say you want the pain to stop, and, or you're lonely, or um, you are frustrated with how things are going in your business or your marriage or your personal life. It could be anything, your finances. And like it's a legit thing. Can't we agree? Being lonely, being depressed, being frustrated, um, being hungry, like those are all real. And, uh, but then what we can tend to do is this idea comes that says, yeah, well, here's another way you can get that, that need met. Here's another thing you can do to fix that. Another idea, other than trusting God through what you're going through, other, uh, another way to go about it. So what Jesus does, though, in a way that's very different than Israel, is he says, you know, um, here's his response, and he quotes scripture in verse 4, and Jesus answered him and says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So here's what he's saying when he, he quotes this scripture back to the devil, is he's saying, um, look, I hear what you're saying, and yes, I could do that, but actually what I need more than bread right now for my hunger, even though I do need bread to live, even more than that, more primary is I need, I need the Father, and I need the Father's presence. I need the Father's words. I need, I need these promises. I mean, the promises from the Bible, uh, even more than I need physical sustenance right now, more than comfort, more than something that would make me feel better. That's how Jesus interacts with his first temptation. And if you compare that to Israel, Israel failed miserably through all of these same kinds of temptation where they were hungry, they had these physical needs, and uh, God would provide quail and a kind of bread called manna. And even with that, every day they go, yeah, you did it today, but what about tomorrow? And they would try to gather more up, kind of have some in reserves. And God would say, look, I'll I'll provide for you tomorrow, just like I provided for you there. But they refused to trust God for basic provision and even the needs that they have that are real, but trusting God to handle those in his way and not short circuit it. So um, right there you um, you see Jesus interacting with this. And I do think, by the way, just as an aside, I do think a conversation about uh, this isn't only about food. Um, this would be all kinds of comforts that we might seek, you know, from substances to um, different kinds of desires and pleasures. It could be a million things. But I do think food is just an interesting conversation for how much we tend to manage our moods and things we're frustrated by with food. And that every meal is supposed to be amazing and Instagrammable. And the taste, like very rarely are we content just to go eat something that's just kind of okay, that does the trick, a bologna sandwich or something like that. It's got gluten, probably shouldn't do that or something, but, um, you know, there's, there's something out there just to go eat like food that gives you what you need in terms of nutrition. But, uh, but a lot of times our stomach can, can rule us. And Jesus emphatically says here, I'm going to, I'm going to trust the father and his provision. The next two temptations are the same idea, basically with an idea that intersects something of Jesus's vulnerability there on a physical level or some desires that could be there. And this next one is, um, is, uh, verse five that, um, Jesus, the devil took, uh, took Jesus up and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time and said to him, look, I'll give you uh, all, um, all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. Now this may be confusing. You're like, well, hold up. 
Who's in charge here exactly, Satan or Jesus? Because it sounds like Satan is saying he's in charge, and Jesus doesn't necessarily correct that per se. So, like, what's the what's the story here? Well, here's what you got to understand: is that when the Bible talks about God's kingdom being realized on earth, there's like an already and a not yet tension to it. So, there's a sense in which already God's kingdom has come on earth, and especially when Jesus came through His crucifixion and resurrection, that um, these things had to happen. Uh, that the cross and the resurrection needed to happen. In fact, I would make this case, it sounds like a, an overstatement, but it's not. If Jesus fails here in the wilderness in a similar way to how Israel failed, the cross would mean nothing. It'd mean nothing. Uh, because there have been a lot of sacrificial deaths over the years. There have been a lot of people that have died for their um, other people in their military unit. They've died for their family. They've died for their country. Lots of people have died, and only one has died for the sins of all who would believe in the whole world. And the reason was is because he obeyed God perfectly and never sinned and trusted him even to the point of temptation. And this is part of the beauty of this transaction. It's more than a transaction, but it's not less than that, of God offloading our sin and rebellion on Jesus, and then Jesus giving us his perfect record of obedience, his perfect record of handling temptation, and that being credited uh, credited to us even though we did not perform it. Now, there's more there, a new identity. We are loved and treasured and adopted. There's more there, but it's not less than that. So the, the idea here would be on this particular temptation is going to be um, that, hey, look, that there's an already sense that, that Christ has come and, and has cru- been crucified. He will at the point, just a few, um, a few months or years later after this story and be resurrected from the dead. But there's a clear not yet, right? Um, that yes, Jesus rules. Nothing happens in this world outside of God's governing. However, there's a lot of sad and broken things in our world, and it's not been completely made right. In other words, God's rule in this world has not been fully realized yet. And so what Satan is saying here is, hey, look, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Let's fully realize your rule right now. And here's all that that would mean. No cross. So Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. We can, we can just step around that. And isn't that right? Anyways, you haven't done anything wrong here. You've never been the one that's been sinning. Why should you have to die? That's ridiculous to begin with. And furthermore, let's just think about where all this is going, Jesus. You're going to have, you're going to hatch this super goofy thing called the church with doofus pastors that do all sorts of dumb stuff and are terribly flawed and a bunch of Christians that go dark for thousands of reasons, go dark against God, abandon the faith, um, that um, go dark against one another and withdraw from God's people. Um, It's going to be crazy town. And like, you're going to do that for a few millennia. You feel good about that? And furthermore, um, how the expansion of all this is going to go is person to person, family member to family member, friend to friend, churches that are then planting churches and then even going among the unreached to make Jesus known among the unreached. And it's going to be two steps forward, three steps back, one step forward, two steps back, three steps forward, one step back. And it's going to be frustrating. People are not going to be able to stay overseas. They're going to need to come home and you're going to just be constantly fighting against this. How about we just make all that happen right now? and not have to deal with the crazy town of Christians and churches and all the dumb stuff they're going to do for the next few thousand years. And so you see the vulnerability and intersecting an idea that has something to it, there's something plausible, how easy it would have been for Jesus to say, man, that is a great point. Why don't you just hand these things over to me and let's just wrap this up right now. Um, and no cross. And now that you could see that where this would go, though, what this would mean for me and you. If Jesus chose that path, um, there would be no salvation for me and you. Um, there would be, not be a path for that. So, yeah, there, this is the intersection of these ideas with our vulnerability and how prone to wander we are. 
I think we sang a song about that a minute ago. Third temptation is similar, and um, they're, they're, uh, um, that, oh, by the way, Jesus quotes Scripture again, you'll worship the Lord your God and serve him only is the response to this. Is, I'm not going to worship you. I'm worshiping only, only the Lord, only the Father. Uh, so in verse 9, then Satan shows him all the, uh, takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple and uh, said, look, you're, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. And he even quotes Scripture this time. That's interesting. Quotes Scripture and says, uh, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So he more or less quotes Scripture and says, look, just prove, prove who you are. Prove it to me. Why don't you do that? Prove it to me. And once you jump off the top of this, and it's in the Bible somewhere that you know, the angels won't even let you get hurt. So why don't you flex again? Why don't you prove it to me and show who it is that you are? Again, there's a point of vulnerability here of, of saying, uh, hey, look, why don't you, um, I don't, I, I'm not seeing it. And there's a lot of people that aren't seeing it. Why don't you go ahead and flex? Why don't you jump off from this? Here's some scripture that would prove it. Jesus puts a clinic here of something that all of you here are going to deal with all the time. And that is somebody saying, hey, somebody out there believes this verse means something or another. And that's a little different than what you're saying here. And because somebody out in the universe think this verse means something or another that's a little different, that means we can't possibly know what's true. And so can't we all just kind of get along? And you might as well go and do this since somebody out there thinks this verse means something else. But what Jesus does here is incredible. It's actually really helpful is he's going to let Scripture interpret Scripture and quotes another Scripture that will clarify the misuse that Satan has of how he's quoted this. And Jesus says, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He sees right through it and says, don't play little games here. I don't need to flex because what this is all about is you're wanting to make uh, the father flex to prove who he is and you're putting him to the test and he's not on trial here. He's not. He's God. He's the one who made you, and here I am. Um, Jesus is, is God in the flesh, and we, are, we, we don't have to do that. We don't need uh, to put God to the test and sees right through that. And just because somebody in the universe thinks that a verse means something else doesn't mean that it's on equal footing. You actually can truly know what the Bible teaches, and Jesus is putting on a bit of a clinic on this. But there would be something to this temptation, wouldn't there be, about going, you know what, this is a good point. Um, I need, I do, I, there'd be nothing wrong with proving them. And yeah, that verse is there. If I were to jump off here, the angels wouldn't let anything happen to me. And, and I could do that and prove to him who I am. And maybe some other people would finally see who I am. There'd be something to that idea that Jesus could have taken and run with. But instead, he depends on the Father. He trusts God. He trusts God's promises. And he uh, refutes Satan's temptations with Scripture. That's what Jesus does here. All right, so this is Jesus juxtaposed with what Israel did, that he succeeds where Israel fails. Now, what I want to do is now talk about Jesus and you and me. And before I just jump right now to how you need to handle temptation, we're going to get there. But first, I just want to make a quick point that this is very important because if you don't take this this first step that this text is begging for, you're going to miss something really valuable and full of grace for you. So here it is, is that before you jump to hey, I want to be Jesus in this story, you probably first need to see yourself as Israel in this story, right? Where me and you have not stood up well under temptation. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hope that Christians in this room, by God's grace, that God has grown us and perhaps we've, we've been able to say yes and no appropriately and trust God at very difficult points for us. But too many times where I have short-circuited this and have said yes to a temporary fix, to a legit need, there was something different than what God had said. And the first step is seeing that we are more like 
Israel than like Jesus in this story. However, um, this is what I love about grace. Grace is the best thing ever, y'all, um, that God laid down, uh, it sent Jesus, and, and God in the flesh, Jesus, is crucified and resurrected, and in so doing, uh, performs well for you. If anything, what you're going to be doing at the end of the service, we take communion here, and, and what Christians will say when you come and take is you're going to tear that bread, which represents Christ's body. You're going to dip it into the juice, which represents Christ's blood shed for you. And what you're saying is, my performance actually has been inadequate. It truly has. I've succumbed to temptation way too many times, but Jesus performed well for me, and he succeeded where I failed, and I am loved, and that transaction of my sin placed on him and his righteousness placed, uh, placed on me is real, and you're actually making a statement of Christ's performance on your behalf in regards to temptation. Isn't that cool that you're able to say that? This, this is what grace is all about. All right, now, now, if you've walked through that step and you're more Israel than Jesus in this story, yet Jesus steps in for you, or if you're not a Christian, if you were to believe in Jesus, this is what would be true for you. Now you're ready to talk about temptation, and here's how I want to interact with um, you and me and temptation. So here'd be my case, is that um, there's not a lot of, of um, there, there's not a lot of variety in what Satan is going to do that he's been doing the same thing with Israel that he did with Jesus, and he's going to do it with you, and he's been doing it with every, you know, your great-granddaddy and everybody else, and your brother and your roommate and everybody that you know. It's the same basic approach. And the argument I'm going to make for it is it's actually going to be very similar to Mike Leach's playbook. Now, follow me on this. Now, check this picture out here. I'm not making any comparison uh, with Mike Leach and Satan, so don't even start tweeting me or something like that about it. I want you to notice this right here. This thing in Mike Leach's hand is his play sheet, all right? This is at Washington State. If you go back and look at pictures when he was at Texas Tech, you'd see a real similar wrinkled up sheet of paper. If you go back and see him as offensive coordinator at OU, you'll see a very similar wrinkled up piece of paper that looks about the size of an index card. That's it. Now, you compare that this year um, with a friend of mine that's a member that was in our 8 o'clock service, Emory Dudensing. He's a coach at a, at a school here in town. I was running the chain gang on his sideline, and, and man, he had like a three-ring binder hanging off his, his belt on that deal, you know, flipping through things, third and long, okay, good zone, you know, all this stuff. And there's your play sheet for Leach, but here's how it would work, is there'd be only a handful of plays, as you could see, that, that, that the Leach offensive system uses. Um, you'd have some that are zone beaters and some that are man beaters and different zones and things like that you can attack. And you just run those same handful, handful of plays out of a variety of formations. But there's your play sheet right there. I would make the case that uh, the devil's play sheet is really similar. He'll run it out of a lot of different formations, think life circumstances, but it's the same basic play sheet. And it's the same basic handful of plays he's going to run on you, the same ones he ran on Jesus, the same one he ran on Israel. So here we go. You could probably classify them different ways. Here's how I'm going to classify them. Number one, the first, the first one of Satan's Mike Leach playbook of ideas that strike our vulnerability, all right? Uh, hashtag that, I guess. You can go, there, there's your whole tweet. There's nothing else even to say. Number one is comfort. Number one is comfort. So for Jesus, this was you're hungry. That's legit, isn't it? You're hungry, you're lonely, you're depressed. It's a real need and even something that you want to be better. You, you don't want to feel this way anymore. It's a real desire. My counselor used to say, the soul gets what the soul needs and you're going to find some way to fill this longing in you. But the question is, is it going to be something broken? Are you going to step outside of God saying, I will provide for you. The only thing you need is my word and I will sustain you. And it's the same 
kind of stuff. And um, you're going to try to medicate yourself with whatever experience or substance or relationship or fantasy or whatever it is to try to make this pain go away right now and not feel so lonely and not feel so crummy and not whatever it is. And this is when you know you're buying into this, you'll say a sentence like this. And this will be the idea that will resonate with you is, um, man, it's so hard to be me because of how lonely I am and how depressed I am and how hungry I am or whatever the case would be. I don't think it's all that big of a deal if I blank. I just don't see what's so big of a deal about this, given how hard it is to be me. Like that, that's the that, different formations. You have your own life circumstances, but it's the same basic play, same basic play. Here's a second one. Here's a second basic play that the devil will run, and it's related to approval. And you actually see it in this passage too, where you know the, the devil says to, say, to Jesus, basically, prove it to me. Prove it. Impress me. You know, here I am. And there are a lot of us that are, are, are too ashamed to admit vulnerability and difficulty, that things are not as awesome at home as it may seem, and that your business and professional success or success in school isn't what you would like to present it as, or you're, you're a lot more depressed than a lot of people would know, that your marriage isn't as healthy, your kids aren't doing as well as you may think, or you, you may, your dreams are not playing out like you wish you would, or people don't know about your anger problem, and they don't know um, that when you go home at night, you drink quite a lot uh, on a regular basis, and Nobody really, but if they knew, how would they think? And so there are a lot of us that are, are going to be really tempt, tempted at this point of how do people think of me and really wanting to, things that will motivate us, made a, motivate us a lot are how will people interpret what I'm doing here and will people think well of me and will they like the choices I'm making? You have this false self that you try to present to other people in hopes that they'll like this fake version of you, but you can obviously see where this goes terribly wrong. A life lived for the masses to think well of you, and by the way, they don't really think of you at all, um, really hardly ever, because they're thinking of themselves all the time. And, um, and even so, they almost certainly will not be that impressed. I would just make a case that a lot of our movies that'll tell you a lot of like American mythology of what we really value, how many movies do you watch where this is the basic storyline? is people aren't really all that impressed with you. You're just Joe Blow in the middle of, of the world doing your business and nobody really cares or notices. In fact, you have people that really doubt your ability to win, make money, whatever it is um, in life. And but because of sheer force, you kick the door down and you succeed at every turn and even defeat or outdo these people that were your naysayers. And at the end of the movie, they kind of walk up to the star of the show and they say, not bad, you know, that kind of deal. And, and that, that kind of attaboy, kind of fist bump, you know, okay, I didn't used to think you were legit, but maybe you're all right now because I have no choice other than to do it. And so that's how a lot of us can see it is they'll have no choice other than to accept me and to think well of me if I succeed enough or if I'm beautiful enough or if I have enough money or whatever. The third basic play that can be run against you and that will be run, I'm just going to lump them together of power and control. And we also see these with Jesus about your influence and all these kingdoms and your ability to control it and rule it now and not have to wait. That for a lot of us, we have to ask the question, like whose kingdom are you building up right now, really? Like with your career aspirations, with your relational circles, with your family, like whose kingdom? And whether you're talking about growing a church or a business, it could be anything. Whose kingdom are you, are you building? And for a lot of us, control is a gigantic issue. That It's not so much that you're passionate about people obeying God and his word. It's just them doing what you want them to do and be quiet when they're supposed to be quiet and talk and engage with you when they're supposed to talk and, and you know, give you a, a free pass whenever you have done something wrong when you want them to. And, and you've got a script in your head that you want people to be playing. Now, nobody has that script, albeit. Uh, but none, nevertheless, you've got this idea of the part everybody's supposed to play. 
And uh, sometimes power and control can be major issues where, um, where the, the idea will be this, is are you even important? Like you're, you're, nobody cares anything about you. Nobody, you're not significant in this world. And so then, instead of leaning in to, yes, but I'm a son or a daughter of God, or, and I'm going to trust God for this, we immediately go, you know what? I'm going to show them what's up, and I'm going to flex, and I'm going to succeed, and I'm going to be beautiful enough, and I'm going to be successful enough, and I'm going to do whatever enough so that nobody will ever make me feel that way ever again, and then I'll have control of my environment, and, in fact, comfort will follow as I have these things that happen. And so here's the thing, man. This is what I want you to hear, is that this, all, this whole passage is incredibly good news for people like me and you that have not hit our marks and we have failed when tempted, that Christ stands for you, grace is real. And then now, through Jesus, not only his example, but the promises of the Bible, the indwelling power of the Spirit, you're now given the ability to stand stand in the way that Jesus did um, in temptation. You're now given that, that power and that ability, and now we can lean deeply in on whenever we're confronted with these areas of comfort and power and control and approval, that we can lean deeply into God and his promises and um, his presence. We can lean deeply into that and not short circuit these things with ideas that are really going to feel good to us in the moment and trust him deeply. And that's my hope for all of us here that we would, uh, this is the way out, is this deep trust that, that, we, um, that we, need, we need more than bread. We need every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I want to pray this for you. So let's stand. All right, Lord, would you um, let these words and these promises ring true in us? Lord, let these things be felt. And even whenever all of us in here, we're all just so weak, we're all so vulnerable, we admit this, that, Lord, you would provide for us, you would sustain us, especially when it's hard, especially when we're lonely. Um, Lord, you would be our help. So I pray that for that, especially for those, some in this room that are surely going through just a withering season of um, real vulnerability. Lord, would you, uh, would you protect us? Would you give us a way out? Lord, thank you for Jesus, for his perfect performance on all of this and the grace that you give us. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.